So when most people talk about the future of work, they think about technology. I think that the future of work is about being a better human. What does it mean to be more human? How can it benefit you, your career, and others? In this special panel episode of the Creator Community with three doctors, now authors, we explore humanism and how we can bring more of it into our lives and positively impact those around us. We will never live in a world without stress, systems, or people. It is the attitude that we take in viewing these elements that make the difference in how we live each day. When we see the world as a place of discovery and learning, we connect more deeply with others and ultimately become more human. That's what this episode is about. Check out the show. Welcome to the Creator Community. This is a podcast from book publisher New Degree Press or NDP. I'm your host, John Saunders. This program is powered by Manuscript Inc. The show is designed to celebrate, elevate, and showcase many of the incredible authors that have published their books with NDP. In this show, we learned about their authors, their journeys, and their books. This year, NDP will cross over 1,700 published authors from six continents and has earned the spot on the Inc. 5000 list for the second year in a row. This is the fastest growing privately held companies in America. If you've ever thought of writing a book, but weren't sure where to start or how to finish, visit manuscripts.com to learn more. This is a special episode for season six with three authors. Today I have with me Jenny Byrne, Miriam Zilberglate, Shin Zin Zhao. Today we're going to talk about these amazing new books that have a key theme, which is making the workplace more human-centric. A little bit about our guests. All are PhDs, doctors. This is a first ever. Jenny is the founder and CEO of Constellation PLLC and chief patient officer at Belonging Belong Health. She has been called a triple threat because of her work as a physician, physician leader, a healthcare executive, and as an entrepreneur. She's a brain and behavior specialist with extensive training and experience in psychiatry, psychotherapy, and neuroscience. Dr. Byrne is a relentless optimist and believes that if we change our outdated assumptions, we can all work smarter. Dr. Miriam Zilberglate is a tri triple board certified physician <laughs> in internal medicine, geriatrics, and obesity medicine with extensive clinical and academic experience. Dr. Z, as she's known as, is interested in the areas of well-being, burnout, mental health, and leadership development. She completed a fellowship in leadership education and development, AAMC certification as a mental health ally, and training as physician wellness advocate. Dr. Z has been recognized for multiple achievements, including Mentor of the Year, AMWA 2021, and American College of Physicians, Young Achiever 2017. Originally from Peru, Dr. Z has two awesome sons, a caring husband, and a supportive family. Her dream is to help others achieve lives of full joy, meaning, and well-being. Last but certainly not least, Dr. <laughs> Shin Jin Zhao spent over 30 years as a global business executive with various leadership roles around the world, educated at MIT and Wharton. He has always had the curiosity to try, the passion to learn, and the willingness to share. Shin Jin maintains a weekly LinkedIn leadership blog with over 280,000 subscribers around the world. His interests include reading, photography, and marathon running. Wow. What a fantastic group we have here today. Welcome all of you to the show. Thanks, Thanks John. for having us. <laughs> you know, before we get into your books and these incredible topics you have around human centricity and the importance of that, you know, if you all would just share a little bit about your career journey and what that looked like for you and what led you to this moment, Miriam or Dr. C, if you'd like to start. <laughs> Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here and, and for having me here with two amazing friends and, and co-authors. I, as you mentioned, I am a physician with multiple certifications and even that may sound important. Really, that's not what I consider more important in my personal or professional career. My my goal is to help others. My goal is to create well-being and raise awareness about mental health and a better quality of life. And my career is, as well as the, as the book, are only my tools to, to achieve my real dream in, in life, that is to help. Incredible. Thank you for, for sharing that. Jenny, you want to share a little bit about your background? Yeah, and thanks again, John. This is like such an amazing group to be here with. I just feel very privileged. I'm also a physician by training, a psychiatrist. My career has circled around brain and behavior. So that's kind of my passion and that's how I tend to see the world. So done a bunch of different things, including practicing medicine, solopreneuring a practice, being a national exec, but really it comes down to how people work 
and how the human brain works. That's what fascinates me. So when pandemic hit and we all started working virtually and trying to figure things out, I felt the answers weren't coming quickly enough. And so I started to do my own research using the brain and behavior lens. And then from what I found, I got inspired to share it with other people. And that's how I got to the book. Thank you for that. And uh, Shinjin, a little bit about your background, please. Now, like I said, you said earlier, I have been uh, in the business side, uh, different from Jenny and uh, Miriam. Over 30 years, uh, I was in the business side and as a business person traveled all over the world. Uh, uh, I was managing a global business, uh, traveled probably 30, 40 different countries, has a different customers, partners, colleagues around, uh, around the world. Around 2017, I got a completely different assignment to go to China to manage an investment project. At the time, I was thinking, I don't want to just disappear from the planet. How do I maintain this large network I built over the year? So I started blogging on LinkedIn, started blogging as a way of connecting with the, all the colleagues. The more I blog and the more people are interested, slowly that built up into the 280,000 people around the world reading my weekly blog about leadership, about culture, about decision making. And that led to a lot of people asking me, why don't you write a book? So when I retired a few months ago, I guess it's eight months ago, the first thing I did uh, exactly the week I, I retired, I signed up for the program, write a book. And that, that's how I started to write, write the book. What started as a way to connect with others and maintain this network when you were working abroad for a bit turned into a, quite a following. That is fantastic. Miriam, let's go back to you. How did you discover this program? And you know, how did you fit it into your, your busy life with a family and a career? <laughs> Oh, so this program, this was a miracle and it saved my life. It came to my life when I needed the most. I was going through a lot of challenges in my previous job and I was considering during that time to really quit my job and, and find a different way to advocate for things that were important for me in the healthcare system and around well-being. As part of that, I started connecting with people in LinkedIn, trying to learn more and more about the topics. And I found one of these contacts that was celebrating writing a book. And I thought that this was too good to be true. I did some research about it and it took me two days to go through my you know, imposter syndrome moment, thinking that this is not for me, that being, you know, having English as a second language will not fit this and all these crazy ideas that came to my mind. And suddenly I sent my information and I received the call and the best thing that happened to me. Thank you so much. <laughs> so you found it by somebody in your network posted about it on LinkedIn. Fre by a friend of a friend of a friend. It was like, now we are friends, but we, we didn't know each other before. It was just good luck. It happened as a miracle, really. <laughs> Amazing. A miracle brought you here, Miriam. Who was the author who you noticed posting about a book? Her name is Jennifer Tom. Just, I, I believe, two, two groups before us. <laughs> Incredible. It's amazing how many folks find their way here through social media posts. Jenny, what was your story? How did you discover the program? So it was almost exactly a year ago, I would say this time, I had worked with an executive coach, Randy Braun, who is also an author in our group. And she called me, we had worked together a couple of years ago. And she's like, Jenny, I always said you need to write a book. Like, here's your chance, write the book. And I was like, yeah, thinking in my mind, this is a very serious decision. You know, I have a lot of other things I'm doing and I don't know if I want to commit. And like 30 seconds later, I was like, yes, I will write this book. <laughs> so it was just a serendipity moment where the pieces came together and Randy gave me that little nudge, but it was, I don't know. I just felt like it was right. It was something that I knew it was the right time to say yes. Love to hear that story. Shinjin, how did you come about finding the book? I'm a relatively active on LinkedIn. I came across Professor Erica Custer's posting. Accidentally, maybe about a year and a half ago, I followed him for a long time without doing anything. Writing a book, to be honest, it was a bigger challenge that I was ready for just to follow him and be reading his his posting stuff. When I retired, I decided to to connect. I had a call with him, 30 minutes call. I, I would see with a little bit of encouragement from him and a lot of blind faith, I could write a book and jumped in. And that, that's that's my journey. 
you know, thank you, LinkedIn, and pulling this world together. I guess Jenny did it the old-fashioned way through a human, but <laughs> the, uh, the the social media machine is unbelievable. So before we dive into the books, just a little bit about your book cover process. So Miriam, let's go back to you, the 3G life cycle. What was the book cover development process like for you? One of the best parts of the book, beyond writing, writing was beautiful, but the cover. The cover was fantastic. I used to paint or draw, and you can see in my back, my kids had the same <laughs> love for art. So the cover was an artistic moment, a way to express and to, in some way, transform the words in images that will express what the book is about so so it was a it was a fun moment a happy moment of you know a relaxing moment during this process <laughs> i love the circles the colors and the butterflies all kind of natural elements that really came together nicely yes, and the butterfly reflects is the image that reflects the book the transformation the moment where we transform ourselves in a better version or we grow after being in a challenging moment of development. The butterflies are, are the manifestation of what the book is, is about. When we go out of the cocoon and we free ourselves of our, our own mental barriers and our fears, we can show who we are and we can show, you know, our real colors, our wings, our dreams and our beauty, our inner beauty. What a beautiful message. Jenny, very different direction from what Miriam went through. Yours has more of a kind of a sci-fi feel to it, the brain. What's going on there with your cover? It does. It kind of landed in a sci-fi place. I went through a lot of visualization kinds of things and images, and I really came on this idea of constellations because they are a couple things. Constellations are dots in the sky, but our brain sees patterns in them and we connect the dots. And when different people look to the sky, they see different things. And I always thought that was a really beautiful visual of what I wanted to do more of was help connect the dots in new ways for people. But the one I landed on was really more this feeling of connecting and constellations and how we can visualize and see things in different ways. So that's kind of how it landed on that sci-fi constellation points of light kind of thing. Certainly feels like the message of the title comes through in the metaphor image as well. Work smart, use your brain and behavior to master the future of work. And Shinjin, certainly last but not least, what, what was your cover story? The Odyssey of Self-Discovery on Becoming a Leader. So my my cover, it's, 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 it's nice. It's a book about leadership. So there are three messages I was trying to, to reflect on the cover. One is leadership, it's really a journey. It's odyssey. It's a journey. No shortcut to it. And leadership, there are a lot of up and down. There is no straight line. You, you, you're going to go through a lot of up and down. The third message I was thinking was leadership really is not about you. It's about the people you lead. It's, you know, more, more than individuals. So when I was looking, looking at the, the cover photo, I do, I'm a photographer. Actually, I started with one of my photos taken actually earlier last year in the National Sandu National Park. It's with the sand do that that came out. I think nicely reflect all the message I want to reflect. I had a survey with my community, and overwhelmingly people chose that. And that's that's how it ended up at my cover. So this image of the the two people walking over these enormous sand dunes, you took that photograph. That's my photo. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And you all did such a great job of pulling the metaphor out in your story. So let's let's get into these books a little bit. So Miriam, let's go back to you. So the 3G life cycle, the secrets for achieving joy, meaning, and well-being. What is this story about? I was looking for transformation. I was going through it. And I was asking myself how to do it right. I have been always labeled as this resilient person. I, I really bounce back very easily through, through life, part of being a physician also. That's how they train us. But I have this particular way to do it. And I will. I was never able to really explain it to others. I, I just knew I, I do it. 
So during this period that was so challenging for me, I was trying to replicate this, but in a more strategic way is how do I do it? And how do I do it this time right? Because this time is very serious. It's not only COVID. I am trying to quit my job. I'm trying to fix the system. My family is going through difficult situations. This is beyond my typical challenge. So part of this exploration took me to a point where I saw I discovered that I don't see life in a linear way. For me, life is not linear. I don't go from one point to the other without return. I actually see life like a video game where I have different levels. And each of these levels give me the opportunity, like when the kids play, right? That, okay, you you, you die, but you try again in the same <laughs> level. And every time that you are going through the level, you you learn a new trick and or you ask your friend how you do it and and then you are able to finish that with extra points and you go to the next level <laughs> and what is interesting about that is that all the things that you learn in the level one will help you to go to level two in a better way and to grow so that's exactly how I see my life cycle after cycle so I was thinking about okay but what are the components of my cycle and I discovered that I I really live my life based on these three G's my first G is goals and sometimes my goals are based on society requirement you have to finish a school you have to get married you have to have kids there are things that kind of are force in our life you have to get a car but there are some goals that are inner goals that are even more deeper related to to myself and those are my dreams writing a a book helping others so I start any process or any cycle in my life with goals then I go to this energy that keep me moving and that's my second g that is great that's my fuel my emotional fuel and in theory, we should be finished the cycle with achieving your goal, but that doesn't happen every time. And sometimes goals change, or sometimes we change directions. And that doesn't mean failure. That means that we just learn something during this process. And that's why I finish with grow. Doesn't matter what happened, how difficult the cycle is, or how amazing it is, if we use a cycle as an opportunity to learn to create new connections, to to develop new skills, we will be growing all the time. And that's that's explanation of what the 3G cycle philosophy is and how we can apply it in, in our lives. Goal, grit, and growth. I really appreciate that in this metaphor for video games and how we go through each level, learn a little bit, maybe fail, come back and try it again. You're going to make some of the uh, video game time limit conversations with my son more difficult with that story there, Miriam, but thank you. <laughs> I, love, I love the metaphor. Thank you. And Jenny, work smart. What is uh, Use Your Brain and Behavior to Master the Future Work? What's your book about? Writing to friends and colleagues of mine, you know, we were talking about pandemic and what we go back to work, quote unquote, go back to the traditional office. And everyone was like, well, I don't know. I don't, I feel like I need to do something. I'll just go back. I was like, why do you want to just go back? You used to complain about your job all the time and how you hated it and it was miserable. And like, why on earth would you just go back and do the same thing when you have this opportunity? So that really fueled me to start writing. And and what I when I was writing and researching, what I found was that what I believe most people are struggling with right now is human connectedness. And that was pre-pandemic. We were all struggling with empathy, connectedness in the modern Western world that we live in. And I believe that to get to empathy, we need to understand it. But before that, there's some building blocks. And so the first sections of the book are about the building blocks, which are communication and time management. And once those two building blocks are there, then you can build to the human connectedness and empathy, which we're all, I think, craving so much. So the book is a little bit of science, a little bit of brain and behavior science, a lot about the workplace, especially what I call the traditional office, and then a vision of the future, what it can be like if you do things differently. And I believe there are small, very pragmatic things you can do today to make it a lot better that are probably not as hard as you think they are. So when most people talk about the future of work, they think about technology I think that the future of work is about being a better human. We're still going to be humans at the end of the day, aren't we? We can't change that. And I I love these core concepts of communication and time management and really 
if you can navigate those, connection will happen. And when connection happens, that's when work can really flourish, right? We take away those emotional barriers that oftentimes can come about in in the workplace. So what a lovely story and way to frame that, which is really, I think, key elements of leadership, which I think lends nicely to Shinjin's story. So Shinjin, what's what's a bit about your story? I'll start with a quote from Toni Morrison. She said something along the line said, writing is like a dance and slow form of reading. If you find a book you really want to read, but has not been written yet, you must write it. I, I thought it's well a reflection of a lot of the people in, in our community. Throughout my career, to be honest, I read a lot of books extensively about leadership over the years. Uh, many of the books inspired me, motivated me in some way. But uh, to be honest, I never found one book uh, truly give me the clarity in terms of what exactly is leadership or what re- leadership really means. So about two years ago, I wrote a blog. I said, what is leadership? But that became actually the most popular, most read blog I ever, I ever wrote, wrote. There were a lot of discussion, a lot of comments from different people. I slowly realized I'm not the only one struggle with that clarity, what leadership everybody does. I, I think that that's a truly a, a reflection through that access. Every everybody struggle, everybody trying to figure out what leadership is. So the book itself really it's trying to describe the foundation of leadership value, consistent with the, what Jenny said earlier. Really, it's about how leader can develop a self awareness to explore their own value, to better connect their value with the organization objectives, unless those things are are connected, it's very hard to be motivated or inspired. So the book starts with how do you get to know yourself better? I think the effectiveness of your leadership can be enhanced by knowing what truly inspire you, motivate you, and how how you actually ultimately make a decision. If you have that uh, guiding principle, you're going to be making principle based on certain principle. Otherwise, you are going to be just reacting with the, 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 the moment. So in addition to the stories, the insight, I interviewed a lot of the people, thought leader, executives, of course, my own success and failures all over my career. I also included in each chapter some specific leadership action. In the end, it's just reading. It's not going to get, in, get in anywhere. In the end, the reader has to reflect, has to translate some of the concept into action for them to be a more effective leader. So that that's kind of a, a nutshell of my book. Pretty powerful that you talk about leadership and you start with the title, the self-discovery, right? And so many times we lead, we're busy, we've got these, you know, monthly, quarterly things we need to accomplish. And, you know, we we can oftentimes overlook these things, right? Because we're running so fast and hard. And yet your argument is after decades as a leader in the workforce and, you know, writing a blog read by hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of people, your take is we need to find ourselves first. And I think a theme I heard through all of your stories is, is that it, I'm going to paraphrase, but the book you wrote is the book, the first book you needed to read as as your your own adventure, right? And I hear that a lot, which is fascinating to me. Let's go back to Miriam. We heard a little bit about your purpose here, but what do you think really drove you to get this book out there? What's your why behind this book? So I believe that this book started as a introspective journey, a way to discover who I am and where I want to go. It was difficult because. Sometimes assessing your own your own gaps and identifying them and try to correct them could be painful. So it started really inside of me. The beautiful transformation that happened during the process is that while I was interviewing these more than 30 amazing individuals, including John for the book, this stopped being a lonely journey and became a community journey, a collective journey where all of you, part of the book, start sharing your experiences and we start analyzing those experiences in the context of this this 3G cycle and learning how to use different aspects of adversity in our favor. And I start learning not only from my own experiences or from book as as 
My two co-authors here and friends, they use sciences, science to back up the book. I did exactly the same evidence-based information, but I learned so much from the new relationship that I create with each of these individuals that are now part of this collective book. And my hope, my hope is to allow people to be proud of themselves, to empower them, to believe there is no reason to be victims, that we can take control of the things that happen inside and outside of us. We cannot change them necessarily. That's for real. We are suffering a society. Burnout is not an individual problem anymore. Depression and mental health, is they are not individual problems. 46,000 People die by suicide in the United States every year. 400 of those are physicians. 500 of those are kids between 6 and 10 years old, like my kids. If we don't start healing ourselves, being self-aware, learning how to communicate, if we don't start this transformation and we don't become a better version of ourselves, and in the process we allow others to do the same and we help others, where are we going? It's time for us to stop being victims, to be empowered and to take life in our hands. And I will use the phrase that motivates me to do this. And this was said to me by my kid when he was seven, now he's nine years old. This is your life. This is your choice. This is your journey. What a wise young man you have in the household there. Was he interviewed for the book as well? Yes. I have a lot of stories from my kids. They are probably the ones that are teaching me the most. <laughs> <laughs> no no doubt in my mind about it. Well, thank you again for having me as part of your book. Uh, I love your chapter. It's, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I really appreciate the simple but profound statement you're making here, which is, Life is far from perfect. We're going to face challenges, but if we can take a step back, set some goals for ourselves, have a bit of resilience, do some self-discovery, we can experience growth. And that is a never-ending journey, which is just a theme here throughout and finding ways to really make connections along the way in our lives and career, which I think leads us to Jenny's story, which is creating these connections. Jenny, what drove you? What was your mission behind this book to get it out there? Well, you can see, first of all, just from hearing from my colleagues here, like the energy that you get from writing as a community is pretty profound because that's something special about the program and that humanism shines through and you can hear it with my colleagues. But what drove me to get it across the finish line, it started as a very cerebral exercise. This is interesting. I'll research this kind of in my head. And then the more I did, the more folks I talked to, the more I researched, the more I had conversations I think it got a little emotional. You know, sometimes I got really mad. I got really angry talking to people like, why, why are you just burying your head in the sand and creating these workplaces that are making people miserable? Why are you being so stubborn? Or I would get touched by a story about someone who really went out of their way to create something different and more human. Or I would get excited about the way things could be. And so it got more emotional. And sometimes I still feel really angry at people <laughs> or situations, or I get really inspired by hearing others. And so it got out of my head and into my my heart a little bit. And I think the emotional part was actually what really helped me get over the finish line. It was it was ex interesting as an intellectual activity, and as a scientist, there's a lot of science in there. But it's really profound when you talk to people how things about work impact them and their families and their loved ones and their friends. And so I, I think it was the emotional saliency, as I call it, that really helped push me over the finish. So seeing these journeys that had such emotional impact on people and how it was changing their lives. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Just, just people who are making work better now, it can be better, you know, and hearing the stories and how that impacts all the people they work with and then seeing the opposite people who are stubborn and doing things a terrible way without regard for humans and how terrible it feels and how deeply that impacts people who are in bad situations. Mm, right. And and many times it's far from impossible to get these things done. Change can happen. And I love that in your own journey, you saw this 
what I, I'd like to sort of talk about it as a tipping point for people's books, right? You start out, you're writing, yeah. it's a bit messy. You're not sure where this thing is going. And you hit this inflection point where the the you get energized by the people you interview and the research and the learning and the growth. And, and I found for myself, I couldn't wait to get back to my desk. Sometimes people say, how did you fit this into your life? And I say, I couldn't wait to do it. Every day was a race to get back to yep. my desk to write. And it yes. sounds like you had a similar experience. And what, uh, what drove you, my friend? What got you uh, to get this book off the ground and actually finish it? <clears throat> The time-wise, I had a little bit of advantage because you know, after retire, I don't, I have a little bit more control <laughs> of my my time. But I'm seeing the reflection consistent with the man Jenny said is uh, many of us get caught up so deeply and so intensely with the day to day world. It's uh, sometimes uh, we forget to reflect and really think about what's what's truly important. Once you sit back and reflect, then you get a very different perspective, especially the last few years through the pandemic. I think that made a lot of us to think things differently, look at things from a very different perspective. So the writing book, of course, part of that I started with myself, to be honest, to help me to create the clarity. What is leadership? For example, some of the framework, what is leading versus inference? What's the difference between self-awareness and self-confidence? Or how do you influence organizational people in different stages of a career? That That's what started my thinking. To be honest, I consider a relatively successful career. I had a appreciate the wonderful opportunity to do what I did. But our, our journeys are not self-made. A lot of people influenced my career. And now I'm at a stage if I can help others learn from the book to make them a successful leader, I think that's a very rewarding experience. So just the other day, I received a comment on my, my blog. Somebody from Uganda, he said, your blog, weekly blog, really inspired, motivated me to do this, to do that. I think that's a, the kind of thing really means so much for, for us, especially in part of the world where there are much less access to resources like we all do here. So that that's get, get me excited and get me motivated to do to do what I do. I really appreciate this theme I'm hearing consistently throughout all of you, which is to really be humans at work. We have to first reflect on what it is I bring to the table, how it is I control what I can control, and how do I manage these things. And so many times we, we just don't take the time to do it because we feel like we need to be so busy. And I love that there's this global world we live in today that you can have impact on people all over the planet. I mean, Uganda, for goodness sake, you know. 15, 20 hours away by airplane, and here's somebody reacting to what you're saying out there. I really appreciate that. By the side note, Uganda just got listed as one of the top destinations for 2023 by CNN Travel this past week. So Miriam, let's come back to you. A key theme around your book is burnout and some of the journey you had and stress. Let's demystify this here a little bit. Is stress always negative? Oh, no, I love the stress. I am... <laughs> I was interviewing someone for the book. She's actually part of the of the Creators Institute. She's writing her own book. And Chantal explained to me that I am, I didn't know that, that seems that I am an adrenaline junk, which was a very interesting definition. And I will I will explain this. Stress is a normal reaction of our body. And I have a psychiatrist and a friend here with me that will <laughs> that is supporting this. We came to the world with a neurological system that involves stress, and stress is part normal part of how we function as humans, and it allows us to not only survive, but also to thrive if we use it in the right way. Stress was the mechanism that decades ago or hundreds of years ago, we used to survive when we were in front of a lion. And now the lion uses suit and looks very fancy and drives maybe a Ferrari, but the lion still exists. And we use the same mechanism of our body to protect ourselves against lions or difficult moments. But also we use it to be inspired and to get this adrenaline that we need to keep going. So the trick about the stress is not a stop a stress. We need it. There's actually a nice curve that explains how great is a stress. So imagine that you want to write a book. and 
you are in the beach, relaxing with your margarita, with no deadlines, the probability that that book will become a reality is absolutely very low, right? You are too relaxed. So this extreme of the curve is probably not positive for you to be, you know, effective in your life. If you go up this curve, you will go to a level of stress that gives you a deadline and you have to do it right. If not, you will not get a green light for your project. So you will be stressed, but you will be able to produce and you will be able to get to publish your book. Then you have the other extreme that is someone screaming at you in the phone and telling you that you suck and that you don't know how to write a book and that it, you know, and your blood pressure goes up and your heart rate gets out of control and you feel so ashamed and suddenly depressed and you cry and you burn out and no book, of course, because of the consequences. And if you continue feeling that stress for longer, which is chronic stress, and this period is not days, but months, you will develop a higher risk for diabetes, for obesity, for cardiac disease, for a stroke, and any other mental health illness, and maybe even suicide. So stress in a good dose and for a specific time will help us. And that's why I love stress. We just need to be careful to set boundaries and to identify the red flags of chronic stress, toxic environments, and, and negative situations that will take us to an unhealthy stress, which is really where the problem is. And that is a difference that we need to learn. So we are not trying to blame stress. We are trying to use it in our favor. Stress is always going to be with us. It can energize us to be defensive or to maybe be proactive, right? And how we view it and how we try to harness it and leverage it is, is going to make a big impact. You know, Jenny, a key theme from your story was around the traditional office and how that's kind of set the tone for the world we all live in today. You know, what's, what's the story behind that? And, and why has it been so hard to move beyond that? So... When we think about pre-pandemic, the office, we already knew that there were some things that were kind of silly and didn't make sense. So there were some TV shows called The Office, which you may have seen, so British good. and U.S. So yeah. <laughs> there was a movie called Office Space back a while ago. And so we, we, parodied, we parodied it and we knew it was silly. Here's where it came from. This is what I discovered. The traditional office is about 100 years old, maybe a little younger. And before that, we didn't have offices that look like today's offices. But Henry Ford had a brilliant idea. He made cars and he had a brilliant idea that he could improve the efficiency and productivity of his workers by putting them on an assembly line. Right. And this is kind of a famous story. What some people don't know about that story is he actually doubled their wages. That's part of the story. He created a more humanistic workplace back then to get better workers. But he created this floor. It was very successful. So before long, you needed managers to watch everybody on the floor, right? But the managers couldn't be down the street. They needed to be there. So what did you do? You built another layer on the building. You put the managers there and then they could go up and down and help out. Company got bigger. You had more managers. What do you do? Build another floor. And once you get into large organizations, you started to have this, what we think of as a traditional business or a traditional office with you know, ground floor, next floor, managers, next floor, CEOs got that nice, you know, office up in the corner, maybe on the top. And that became our culture. And then post-war America in particular, that was very successful. We had a big industrial boom. And so that became our norm. And so then that evolved into the cubicles and all the other silly things that were parodied in the TV show. But that office was purely based on a factory floor model where people were providing the labor to create physical objects, which has very little to do with the work that most of us do today, especially knowledge workers, as they call it. We don't really have anything like that. And in fact, that old office structure reinforces the feeling that humans are part of a machine. And I believe that's what most of us hate. <laughs> we don't want to be a machine. We're humans. We want robots to help us. We don't want to be a robot. So the traditional office was based on human beings as part of cogs in a machine. 
And that literally the architecture and the design of the buildings reflected that. And so all of that silly stuff about the traditional office was a remnant of Henry Ford. And who knew that we just got so used to it, we thought that's the way it always was, but it's not true. Well, we have a lot to thank Henry Ford for, don't we? But uh, I'm not going to thank him for that one. That's amazing that we've held on to this for, what, a hundred and something years now, right? Why have we held on to it for so long, Jenny? I think people held on to it because it was very reassuring. It was very ritualized. And for some people, it worked great. And I'm going to grossly overgeneralize here, so you'll have to forgive me. But for white men with college degrees, this was wonderful. The traditional office was like the best place ever. You had a beautiful office. You had people running around to help you. You went out for a two-hour lunch. This was back in the day, you know, the cocktail lunches. It was wonderful. So, you know, as typically it was white men in power, why would they ever want to give that up? It was wonderful for them, but it wasn't wonderful for everyone else. So it was only wonderful for the small number of people at the top, but they're the ones in control. So they're the ones who designed it that way. They like to keep it that way. And I would argue as a gross overgeneralization that they're the ones who also want to go back. Whereas others who maybe it wasn't great for them before, they don't really want to go back five days a week because it wasn't great for them. I really appreciate the historical context here and sort of the why behind it, which is, boy, it works out for the people in charge. So let's keep going with this thing, right? Believable, the historical context there and certainly this inertia that's happened. And I think there's a an issue with leadership there, which I think takes us to Shinjin. One of the key questions for your story is, you know, what is leadership and what does that mean to you? Maybe before I go into the answer to that question, I'll start with the the first conversation, John, you and I had when I started the journey. Actually, you would want suggested to me before I write the book to do a survey. Turns out that the survey became a big part of my my story in in the book. In a nutshell, the the survey, I asked people, have you ever asked yourself, why do you want to be a leader? Then the follow-up question is, uh, has anybody in your organization ever asked you why do you want to be a leader? The survey result was stunning. About 82% of people said that, yes, I've asked myself that question. And uh, only 39% of people said anybody in their organization ever asked them why they want to be a leader. So what people think about leadership is very disconnected to what organizations are doing in terms of leadership. So in a way, as we said earlier, leadership really is not for you. It's about the people you're leading. But that's driven by inherently your leadership value, your core value, your purpose, how you're being raised has a big impact of what you think your leadership value is. But organization generally does not take the time and effort to really dig into that level of understanding. End up, the world spends billions, billions of dollars about leadership development. Very often, companies or organizations focus on what the organization wants, what the organization needs, rather than what truly motivates and inspires people to be the leader. That's, to me, this survey in a way validate that there is a big gap there. So come back to the question what leadership is. I don't think there is one answer what leadership is. Everybody is motivated by different people. That's why I lead to the question of you really have to spend the time and effort to understand yourself, to do the self-awareness, to have the self-discovery, understand how you are being perceived by all this, what's your truly important in the end, I come to the conclusion that self-awareness starts with the self-acceptance because you are who you are. You are not somebody else. Just because another great leader did a certain way doesn't mean you have to do the same way. Then the self-awareness led to self-confidence. The more you know about yourself, the more confident you are. The reverse is not right. Confidence doesn't give you the awareness, but awareness gives you confidence. Only then the self-confidence can give us the courage to be authentic, to be transparent, and to be vulnerable even, to be an effective leader. So to me, it's kind of the, the learning I've gone through in terms of get a sense of what leadership really means to me. That to me is the take-home take message from my book. 
<laughs> such such an important lesson that we have to think about why, right? And so often that question doesn't get asked. We take sort of this old model, maybe adjacent to the Henry Ford story we just heard, which is you're good at your job. You seem to figure out a great way to do it. Now you're going to manage these other people who do this job as well because you're good at it, right? That's sort of the traditional model for getting promoted. But what is the, the value that you hold? Why do you want to do this? So, so important. And when you think about leadership in that survey you sent out to 280,000 people, Shinjin, what were some of the key words? Because you asked, like, what's a one word answer to what you think leadership is, right? What were some of the common or more common responses you got? The, the interesting. I actually, that was one of the, the only open-ended question I asked people, hey, can you provide three words you think is characterize what you think leadership is? Of course, the answer is all over the place. What's interesting is that the, the answer came back, the top 15 words, it's all about inspiring, about the ser servant leadership, about the motivation. Typically, I think about leadership in a three bucket. One is about the, the really it's about the value, leadership of value. The second bucket is about the Really, it's about behavior. You know? Are you working hard? Are you terrible people? And the third bucket is about skill sets, the communication skill, your management skill. Very often, leader, our leadership development program tend to focus on the skill because we don't spend enough time to understand people's value or what's truly important. And it turns out about the top 13 words all came from the left side about the value, about the behavior. But a lot of the leadership development program, if you if you look at it, is very much a focus on the skill sets rather than those more important aspect of leadership. Amazing. We want to have people that are, you know, good at manufacturing, making, doing, but can they really be a leader and go out and do it? And arguably the answer is no, if they don't think about it and take the time to really figure out what they're about, what their values are and how they can get that collaboration amongst their team to inspire them. I love that that word came up on your list. Miriam, I want to come back to you because all of these things can create stress in the environment, maybe even some trauma. And in your book, you talk about post-traumatic growth. What the heck is that? What's the difference between that and, and resilience? I will I will go there, but if you allow me to follow in the leadership, because I feel that this will be connected. What is very interesting is that we use the word leadership to think about someone that is sitting in a nice office, driving a nice car, has a nice title, a lot of education probably. I I have the concept that you can be the leader of your own life and that these same core values and skills, behaviors that you could use outside in your professional life can be applied to your personal life. And that you can be the leader at your home, you can be the leader at your own life, you can be the leader with your friends, and that being able to inspire others to create a positive impact, even without a title, you can be someone that is a mother at home, which is a lot of work, by the way, and I respect that. So love to all the mothers. But you can be the leader without a title and without education and without money. That those are two different concepts. One is to have a leadership position. And a second concept is to be a leader. And based on that concept, I go back to, to what you ask on the book, right? Being Someone that is able to grow after adversity, that could navigate adversity, is being someone that has leadership skills, that has this emotional intelligence that gives you self-awareness and social awareness, and that has also this ability to be vulnerable without fear, that is curious, that will not stop and feel a victim, but will actually do the next, go for the next step to ask for help, to, to find these answers that are needed to be able to keep moving. And how this concept of post-traumatic growth is, is explained is, let's think about resilience first, because we have been loving the term resilience and we have been trying to be resilient, all, all of us. That has been the be resilient movement, right? Especially during COVID. But being resilient means that 
you are here in your baseline, something wrong happens in your life, whatever it is, you go down, which is natural. Why not? If you are going through a difficult time, of course, we will go down and then you bounce back to your baseline. That's resilience, being able to bounce back. So let's think about COVID. We were here, no matter what is our own here, right? We were here. We go through two years of COVID and then we bounce back. We are resilient. So two years later, after all the things that happened to us and to others, all the changes, all the trauma, all the distress, we are exactly the same that we were two years ago. That's bouncing back, being resilient in general. Post-traumatic growth is a little different. Post-traumatic growth means that you went down, you went up, you go to the resilience point, but something magical happened. And the magical from inside of you, of course. So you were able to learn things, use the challenges in your favor, use the people around you to teach you, learn from them, and suddenly become someone different, someone with more skills, with more knowledge, stronger. And what is magical about post-traumatic growth is that it doesn't stop with you and what we, you were able to achieve. But majority of those that go through this complete transformation become mentors, become leaders, become people that will impact the life of others. So it doesn't stop with you. It starts with you but applies to everybody around you. So you can create this transformation, not as a lonely transformation or individual transformation, but as a community or collective transformation after trauma. And this is a term that comes from positive psychology. So there is an explanation and a science behind it, but I want to explain how in some way we can use adversity, challenges, COVID time in our favor. It's our decision to stop being victims of the circumstances and start looking into what can I learn from this? What can I do about it? How can I help others during this difficult time? And, and use these difficult moments in our life to really be introspective and find what else is inside of us that we didn't know about us. And what we will find is that we are stronger than what we believe, that we are more curious, more savvy, more amazing, and that the only individual of the only circumstance that is stopping us is our own fears, our own shadows, our own imposter syndrome, our own comfort zone situation that makes us, you know, to stay where we are. And as Jenny was saying, it's easier to be where we are. That's what we know. Jump into a pool, not knowing if we will find water is what makes us, you know, nervous. But are we really able to improve, change, develop new things, change offices, be better leaders if we don't jump? We need to jump with all the cautious, right? And all the all the help and support around us. But we need to start jumping because life is too short to just be, you know, witnesses of what happens. We need to be able to be the editors of our own lives. So beyond every challenge is growth. It's just the mindset that we take into it and, and really that ability to be resilient and, and, and have a bit of grit as you share in your three Gs. Yes. And we can do it. <laughs> So Miriam, thank you for that insight. Jenny, one of the things people often tell me is they learn about themselves along the way through writing the book. What was that journey of learning like for you? Quite a theme here. We got self-awareness and leadership. We have learning about, I mean, it's just so true. I, I learned that as many times I've learned this lesson over and over again, that I need to practice what I preach sometimes and being vulnerable and telling some stories, personal stories that were not always my best moments that felt vulnerable. And as a leader and as somebody who wants to be a leader in multiple settings, you really, vulnerability is important. Sharing your mess is really important. And it's actually really hard 
And so I think that's a lesson I've relearned in writing the book. So there's some stories in there that are a little vulnerable, a little personal. I don't, I don't know how everyone's going to react to them, you know, maybe a little uncomfortable to share them. So that was a big, that was a big leap of faith and learning for me. But again, I coach leaders and others, and I tell them this all the time. So it was a good moment for me to, to do what I say and tell other people to do. A good reminder to practice what you preach and and understanding and appreciating the power of vulnerability, right? Vulnerability breeds vulnerability, and that's how we can help bring greater connections and more humanity to each other. Shinjin, what has been an unexpected positive from you throughout this journey? Not exactly completely unexpected, but what, one of the, the, the things I learned to reinforce the most through this process is really the more you share, the more you learn. It's something I've done mentoring over my career a lot. I always tell people, when I mentor some people, don't assume you're learning from me. I always learning from you. Through this writing exercise, actually, in the beginning, I assumed the writing book is it's an individual activity. When I first heard from Professor Eric Costa said, never write alone, I didn't really appreciate what that means. And we, as we go through the process and realize writing book, you interview all the, all the wonderful people, the thought leader, executives. Really, that's a, that's a learning process. By go back to what I said earlier about writing blog. You know, of course, I hope people learn something from my writing, but reality is actually Actually, from all the comments, from all the engagement, I learned a lot more than I could ever imagine through that process. Though the takeaway, the more you share, the more you learn, you know, help others by help yourself by helping others. It's amazing to see that connection and how we can grow from giving, right? And sharing with others. So let's jump into a couple of rapid fire questions here, ladies and gentlemen. Miriam, key message from your book. I will use my my beautiful boy message. This is your life. This is your choice. This is your journey. Live your life in a way that you feel proud, in a way that you have no regrets. Make sure that you follow your core values. Make sure that you discover who you are. And don't have fear. Don't be a victim. You can really edit your life. You can really write your future. And you can do it in a way that you will feel the joy and the meaning and, and, and you will achieve this well-being that, that will allow you also to help and, and to impact the life of others in a positive way. Something that we just heard that is so important. We grow when we help others or we feel better when we, we help others. This is something that comes from our brains, from our nervous system, we produce happy hormones in our body when we are helping others. And we can produce these anti-stress hormones that will make us be healthier. Let's use science in our favor. Let's use life in our favor. We, we can do it. We can do better as human beings and we can do better as community. We deserve better and our kids and the next generation deserve better. If only if only all of us were so, so brilliant at seven years old as your son. Thank you for sharing that. Jenny, key message of your book. Everybody thinks the future of work is about technology, but I think it's about being a better humanism. There are small, easy, pragmatic steps that you can take today to make your workplace better and to infuse more humanism. And Shin Jin, last but again, certainly not least, key message. We, we all think we know ourselves very well, but the, there was a Harvard Business Study 2018. That study concluded only about 10 to 15% of people have a really good self-awareness. So the walkaway message is self-awareness it's just doesn't just happen. It has to be an intentional process to to reflect to learn to grow it's a, it's an intentional process you have to put the discipline put the time and the effort to develop that kind of a self awareness once you have a self awareness you would have a much better chance to align that your value with the organization objective organization purpose and be a more effective leader that, that's my take-home message. Hence, the Odyssey is a never-ending journey of figuring out our way there. Incredible stories, incredible messages about all really being more human at the end of the day and connecting with ourselves so we can more impactfully connect with others. Miriam, where can people learn more about you and your book? 
gcycle.live, L-I-V-E, and at LinkedIn. And please feel free to contact me. I really want to meet more people. I want to learn more from others and I want to help others. Jenny, where, where can people find you? Best place is LinkedIn, or you can check out my website, Dr. Dr. Jenny, J-E-N-N-I-E, Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E dot com. And Shinshin, where, where can they find you? Because my unique name, it's pretty easy to find me in LinkedIn. And uh, I do have a website, becomingaleader.net, but the easier place to start is on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. Well, what incredible stories we have here today. I can't thank you all enough for being on the show. I really appreciate you joining the creative community and sharing your stories. Thank, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a wonderful conversation. Thank you to Creators Institute. They really change our life for better. And I I I believe that if someone is planning to change their lives and to go into a wonderful journey, this is the place to start. Couldn't have said it any better myself, Miriam. Thank you for that. <laughs> Work Smart, The 3G Cycle of Life and The Odyssey of Self-Discovery are available now wherever you buy books online, January 2023. Don't forget to subscribe to the Creator Community Channel on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to leave us a review. If you're ready to write your book, visit manuscripts.com to learn how to turn your idea into a book in about a year. I'm your host of the Creator Community, John Saunders. Keep creating. <laughs>